Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. It is, a, uh, it is a joy to be coming here and to, uh, to bring our family into your midst. We've already been welcomed uh, uh, quite warmly, and we're thankful for that. Um, and what we're most excited about is really being able to walk beside you in the ministry and mission of Jesus. And so uh, let's get right into his word, shall we? Um, in our Anglican tradition, uh, like many in most Christian traditions, the rhythm of life of our church is ordered by the events of the life of Jesus. We want everything that we do to be, to be at its core, pointing towards and informed by Jesus and his life and his work. And so in our church calendar this Sunday, before we begin to enter into the season of Lent, which leads us to the foot of the cross and then the empty tomb at Easter, on this Sunday we remember a significant moment in the, the life and narrative of Jesus called the Transfiguration. Okay, so we're going to talk about the transfiguration this morning. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. There should be some Bibles around you somewhere. Uh, if not, find someone smaller than you who has one and take it. Uh, Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. Uh, it says this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So what what happened here? It can can feel a bit confusing. It sounds like Peter, James, and John, who oftentimes go off with Jesus by themselves, they, they walk up on a mountain, Jesus starts to glow. Um, a couple of dead guys show up, they walk back down. Like, what, what exactly is happening? Why is this moment so significant? What I want you to see this morning is that this is a primary event leading to the, to the crucifixion of Christ. To show who Jesus truly is, that we may understand the magnitude of the act of what Jesus is about to do on the cross. Okay? So let's start with this concept. First of all, All of human history points to the event of the crucifixion. Everything leads up to the the Son of God coming and dying for the sins of the people. You have have creation where God makes all things for himself and for his glory. Um, And he makes us to be in relationship with one another and with him. Then you have the fall where, where we say, you know what? We think that we can live this life and run this earth and this creation better without you than we can with you. Uh, and, we, uh, and we, our first parents, Adam and Eve, walk away from the Lord and bring sin into the world. Then, after that, you have, as you track the story of the scripture, you see the revelation of the perfection of God in the law. That says, okay, if you think you can do this life and, and lead this creation better without me, let me reveal to you what perfection looks like, since that's what you're going to have to obtain. And so, so the law is laid out for us in the Old Testament. And then we have the prophets who, who come to show us all the places where we don't live into that covenant, where we don't live up to that law, where we fall short of that perfection, who are constantly saying, come back, come back, come back. And we, re- and we see in those prophets our need for a Savior. 
that we learn very quickly, well, not quickly, thousands of years of history in the Old Testament, um, that we actually do need God and that what we need is a Savior. We need someone who can heal, someone who can redeem us because we are incapable of doing this ourselves. And then we have the incarnation of God when he comes to be one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he comes to show what a person of perfection looks like, what someone who fulfills the law looks like. And he fulfills our end of the covenant, our end of the bargain, which puts him in a place of being able to atone for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. And ultimately, the great and glorious story of the gospel that that moves even ahead of history from where we are right now is that Jesus has ushered in the end of all things, that one day uh, all things will be made new, all that is bent will be made straight, all that is broken will be made whole. And so at this moment in history, what you have when Jesus walks up onto the top of this mountain is Jesus revealed for who he truly is. God Almighty himself in our midst. This is not just another prophet. This is not, I mean, the things that he has done already, of feeding 5,000, walking on the water, uh, leading the, uh, or calming the storm, uh, healing blind people, all of the things that he's done, they're, they're amazing. But nothing compares to this moment of revelation to who he truly is. Not just a healer, not just someone who can command nature, but God himself. As you see here on the mountain that you have the law and prophets, the witnesses of the Old Testament that have been pointing to the coming of Christ, you see the law and the prophets on this mountain symbolized by Moses, the lawgiver, and by Elijah, the greatest prophet. The witnesses of the law and prophet embodied in Moses and Elijah here talking with Jesus and Jesus revealing his glory in light. There's another reason why Moses and and Elijah are on this mountain as well, because both of these men are are renowned for the fact that neither one of them really died under normal circumstances. Moses, uh, no one ever found Moses' body. It's presumed that God took Moses. And Elijah uh, is taken up in a whirlwind. There's no body to find because he is taken up to God. And so the Scripture talks about an expectation that there would be another prophet like Moses who would come. And Deuteronomy 18 says, When this prophet like Moses who rises up, who can go to God and, and bring the very words of God from God Almighty to the people, when he comes, Deuteronomy 18 says, You must listen to him. File that away for just a second. We're going to come back to that. And then we have, uh, we have Elijah who was expected to return as the herald of the coming of the Lord. And here they are talking with Jesus. Here they are as witnesses to show how everything they represent was part of a trajectory leading to this man and to this moment. Their mere presence shows the significance of, of Jesus and what he's about to do on the cross. So it's pretty amazing that Moses, when the disciples look up, they see Moses and they see Elijah. I mean, that in itself 
is stunning. But these two characters, these two men, these two folks, they're kind of window dressing to the actual star of this show. They're like the other two girls in Destiny's Child, right? Like there's, they're the other two and then there's Beyonce, right? And then, and so that's sort of what's happening here. If you're a theologian, I apologize. Um, that, uh, uh, that, uh, <laughs> that's what, there, there's one star of the show and that star is Jesus himself because whereas Elijah and Moses are mere men, at the transfiguration of Jesus, we see, who he, we see him for who he truly is. The, the perfect and divine and all-powerful God himself. And we see this in, in stages. The scripture reveals this. One, that he shines like a light. And then we see a cloud. And then we hear the very voice of God. So let's look at this. First, this light that says that Jesus... Uh, In verse 2, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his his clothes became as white as the light. So in this, this light, this splendor is what the Bible calls glory. But what is that? Well, it's the manifestation of the splendor, the majesty, the greatness, the purity, the power, the renown of God. And even these words be, fall short. There are no words to be able to describe the glory of God. The Bible describes the glory of God as something that is beyond comprehension. When, when the Psalms talk about the glory of God, they have to resort to metaphors. And when they resort to metaphors, they, they, they begin to talk about things of great magnitude. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Right? That if you want to start talking about the glory of God, you have to go to the biggest thing that we know, the sky. And it shows the glory of God. Not God is amazed by the glory of the skies. But the biggest thing that we know gives glory to God. The beauty of the sunsets that you see, the power of the weather, the the magnitude of space, it all points to something greater and bigger that created it, and that is the glory of God. In Psalm 99, it says, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth shake. So that the glory of God is so big that the earth that we stand on shakes in his presence. Psalm 97, listen to this. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all his people see his glory. So the earth shakes, and the mountains melt. Listen, we might not be able to describe or understand glory, but we can't shake the earth or melt the mountains even with our best efforts. How much greater is the glory of God? So the manifestation of his honor and splendor and glory are often described as light in the Scripture. In Colossians, it talks about how God dwells in light inaccessible. It's so bright, you can't even squint into it because of the purity and the glory of God. Moses, when he would go to speak with God, uh, that he would come back down and his face would be glowing so brightly that he had to put on a veil to speak to people. It was like 
Rudolph, right? They were like, tone it down because we can't see you. Um, Put a veil over the top of this. And so he had to veil his face when he was talking with the people because just the glory of God that had sort of stuck to him when when he was on the mountain with God, the people couldn't stand in its presence. Sometimes in the Old Testament, God's glory is portrayed as a cloud as well. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when they consecrate the temple, and I wish we had time to go into the, the glories of the temple that were supposed to somehow be, uh, be, give us just a whiff of the glory of God with all the gold and all of the, the splendor and the jewels that were in there. 1 Kings 8 says that when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You're seeing a pattern here, right? The bigness of the glory of God, the magnitude of this, so that when in comparison, there's nothing that we have that even comes close. If we say his glory is as big as the earth, nope, the earth shakes. We go to Colorado and we see the Rocky Mountains, and when you look at them and you look at them at all, and you say, this, this must be as big as the glory of God. And the Bible says, nope, they melt like wax in front of him. The light here the cloud. Verse 5 says, while he was speaking, a bright cloud enveloped him, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. So what I want you to see, we just said that all of, all of human history is pointed to this moment. You see from Deuteronomy 18, there's going to be another prophet like Moses who, raises, who is raised up. And when that prophet is raised up, you must listen to him. And so now we have the bright glory of God, the cloud of the Shekinah glory of God around as well, and a voice of Almighty God himself testifying to the person and power of Jesus Christ. And he says, to him, he says to all the people who were there, listen to him. Like maybe there was some forethought into this moment. That Deuteronomy is, is talking about Jesus. And so here on this mountain, you see the splendor of God, and you see the testimony of the law and the prophets, and you hear the voice of God all pointing to this person who is Jesus Christ. And what is the response of the disciples in this moment? Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Our response to glory is to fall down afraid. It happens all the time in the scripture, even when the angels come to the shepherds after Jesus is born. It says the glory of God shone all around them. And uh, I love the King James Version that says, and they were sore afraid right? That sounds like a real southern kind of thing to say, right? Like, <laughs> they were sore afraid. Yes, they were. I reckon so. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so when we, are, when, we, when we have the glory of God around us, when we witness this, what, we have is, what happens to us is that we fall down afraid. Why is this, why is this our response? Afraid? No, this sounds great. Why, why are we afraid? Because the pure beauty and power of Christ and God, the power of his glory is crushing when we are in our sin. You remember the history that we just went through really quickly, creation, fall. We rebelled against him, do you remember? We, we rebelled against God, this God of glory. We, we've, we've said that we can do it better than him. 
We're in a place of rebellion and sin. And when we are in our sin, the glory of God is absolutely terrifying because his ultimate perfection reveals our complete depravity. Because listen, just think about what we've just said about the glory of God and how significant the glory of God is and that even mountains pale in comparison to that. So how about comparing you and your glory to the mountains? There is no part of the mountains that when you come to Colorado and look at the, at the great Rocky Mountains or go to the edge of the Grand Canyon and look out, there's no part of these great geologic uh, um, uh, big I don't even know what you'd call them, sort of uh, features, right? There's no part of these features that goes, wow, Dan's here. <laughs> like We've been waiting. Like, there's no part of the Grand Canyon that starts clapping, right, um, when, when I show up at the edge. They don't care. The Grand Canyon doesn't care, right? They has, the Grand Canyon is not concerned that me and my glory has come. And it doesn't matter how beautiful you are or how much money you have or how sexy you are or your status. It does not care. You and your glory have no effect on the mountains. When God's glory comes, they melt like wax. And see, the problem is here, the scripture says, right, the, the problem that we're facing is that not only are we in rebellion against God, but we are actually glory thieves. This is the truth of, of, of how the scripture shows our, and the, the news gets better. Hold on, but I got to tell you this part first, right? Romans 1 talks about how we have stolen the glory of God. We've rejected the glory of God. We've taken it for ourselves, and we've started to give it to other created things. So we've started to not only not give God the glory that he deserves, we've started to take it for ourselves, um, and there are countless uh, stories that we could tell about this, right? Of, I mean, just the whole, the whole self-esteem model of thinking means we have to esteem ourselves more and more and more, and the more esteem that we have, the better we're going to feel, and one day the mountains will melt. It's not happened for anybody, right? That, that instead of self-esteeming, maybe we need to esteem the one who truly deserves esteem, and find our identity in some place outside of our own selves. Because you can't look deep inside for the beauty that's within because of the fall. It doesn't exist. Okay? So we have here uh, this situation with this powerful glory of God and then us and our sins stealing the glory of God. And God's not going to stand for that. Because you and I are not God. And we don't deserve the glory that is truly his. So here we are, the glory and the splendor of God, crushing and powerful, us and our sins and our inability to be able to heal ourselves. It's a serious situation. And so we fall down terrified. If when faced with the glory of God, your response is not terror and fear, you do not understand either the magnitude of the glory of God or the true depth of the depravity of your own heart. One of the two you've got off. Because if you understand the two of them, then the only reaction is to fall down and melt like the mountains. But then look what miraculously happens. This crushing God that is all-powerful, that could melt the mountains, that shakes the very earth itself. And verse 7 says, but, I love it, but, but Jesus came and touched them. You have the disciples cowering on the ground. 
And Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, and don't be afraid. Because what's being testified to on this mountain is that the God of power and the God of glory, who could in all justification be against us, instead, in our weakness and in our sin, he bends down to touch us and to lift us up and say, be not afraid. This is the point of the cross. Why should we not be afraid of the glory of God? Because God himself has emptied himself of his glory and has put himself on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that his glory is no longer crushing for us. Instead, the power of the glory of God is for us. This is the great transaction that has taken place at the cross. What was against us so that we needed to fall on our face in terror has now become our greatest hope because God Almighty is for us. He is for us. And just as your glory is not greater than the glory of God, nor can you out the grace of God. So that this power you have in Jesus Christ, the glory that is revealed in him is not just glory because of his power, it's also glory because of his great love and compassion. And when you bring his power together with his love and compassion, what you have is a God who is not only able to forgive and able to heal, but willing and longing to forgive and to heal. This is the glory of what happens on the cross. This is the victory that is won at the resurrection. And here on this mountain, we have the entire Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, all of history pointing to this moment when God would bring about this powerful, cosmic, significant moment of atonement that would change the world forever. And to do so, they had to show who this Jesus is and what he was truly paying on that cross. So a couple of things with this, friends, that I want to call out to us this morning before we finish. One, when we worship in this place, and I don't just mean sing. I mean everything that we do in here is worship, right? Singing is a huge part of it where we sing and lift up our voices to the Lord. But all of our liturgy is worship, and all of our prayers are worship, and the sermon is worship, and the sacrament is worship. Even our community and how we interact with one another is worship. When we worship, this God that we worship is this glorious God that has been revealed here. It is easy in our culture to kind of relegate Jesus to sort of a buddy, right? Or or just a a friend, or, uh, or just inspiration, or really, honestly, simply a means to an end. How can Jesus get me through my life? How can Jesus help me obtain what I want to obtain? And listen, Jesus has a lot to offer you, and there's so much help that he, that he brings, and there's so much provision that he brings. But first and foremost, friends, the desire of our hearts is not, I want these things, I hope Jesus can bring them to me. The desire of our hearts should be for the glory of God, and that everything else pales in comparison. And so only the things that bring glory to God are the things that our hearts should chase after. There's a shift, a a transition, and a transaction that takes place on the cross and then in our hearts when we come to know Jesus. Being a Christian and being saved is not just about saying the right prayer at the right time with the right words. It's not just an emotional response. It is truly a change in heart that longs for the glory of God over the glory of ourselves. 
a repentance and belief that says God is greater than me and that that is glorious and that I find my true identity, my true self, my true happiness, my true worth, my true purpose, all of those things that we're after, not in esteeming and lifting up myself, but in falling down and giving glory to God who is worth being esteemed and glorified. And so, friends, when we worship, let us worship well. Let us worship with the honor that we have to stand in the glory of God. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says that we can now approach the throne of grace with confidence. And so let us approach the throne of grace with confidence and with great joy and with passion. Friends, we should worship with our hearts in spirit and in truth in all that we do. Or else we're stealing the glory of God. There's only two other times in the scripture that the word metamorpho, which is where we get transfiguration from. I know I'm not going to go through all that about how we got there, but that's the Greek word that, that means transfiguration. There's only two other times that that word is used in the, in the entire scripture. One is in Romans chapter 12, where it says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, transfigured by the renewing of your mind, that God is going to change the way that you think, feel, act, long, emote. And the other place is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is a reference to Moses, who we just talked about, and that was read earlier. We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the life of the Christian, where we are being transformed into the glory of God from one degree of glory to another, bit by bit, sanctification, where we are being made holy and made righteous, and that we are called to gloriously participate in that process. That's what it means to be a Christian, not just to show up in the proper place on Sunday mornings and put on the name tag. It's an entire life devoted to the glory of God and to his service because we understand that he is our creator and our redeemer and our sanctifier and the hope of all things. One last thing I want us to see in this. In verse 4, when Peter first sees this group of folks, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He says, let's make some houses. In other words, this is as good as it gets, right? Let's just say it's good for us to be here. Let's stay. We can hang out for a little while. We'll build little lean-tos. We can make some s'mores. It's going to be great. We'll just roast them over your glory. It'll be fine right here in the middle. This is good. Let's just stay here. But Jesus brings them back down that mountain. Luke, the, Luke's version of this, uh, of this account actually says they did not know what they were saying. Because, yes, that's as good as it gets. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, Peter. It's as good as it gets. And one day we'll be standing in that glory. And we'll be singing and we'll be praising and we'll be feasting. And that is the place that, that all of human history is leading to. When there's a new heaven and a new earth at the wedding supper of the Lamb and every tongue and tribe and nation is around the host, Jesus in all his glory. You're right, that's as good as it gets. But we are not there yet. We have work to do. Other people need to know about this glory. Other people need to know about the greatness of this good news. Other people need to know uh, that the God who is against the, the stealing of his glory is standing longing, wanting people to come to know his forgiveness and know his redemption and know this new life that he offers. We have work to do in mission. 
it's good in here, friends. This is good. This is good. We're excited about moving up here and being with you. It's good. You guys are good people and, and have enjoyed almost all the conversations that I've had. Um, uh, that, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, and this is good, but friends, this is not it. Like, we don't get to stay here and just go, oh, this is good, we need to stay here. It's out there, the people who need to know the glory of God. We have to go from this place. We have to plant more churches. We have to, we have to lead other people to this great truth that their creator has died for them to redeem them. And so I leave you with this challenge. Ponder the glory of God. As we enter into Lent this upcoming week, enter into Lent with a, with a dedication to, to pondering the cross, why the cross had to take place, who it truly was who emptied himself to die on that cross for your sins, and then greatly rejoice at the victory that is revealed in Easter. If you are in this place and you do not yet know this Jesus, if you're still asking questions and still trying to figure things out, listen, that's great. I'm so glad that you're here, and I want you to continue to ask those questions. But what's going to change your heart is not an intellectual answer to all of your questions. It's when the glory of God is revealed to your heart. And I pray that that happens in this place today. Whether we belong to Jesus and we dedicate ourselves to a deeper and more, uh, more mature following of him, a more passionate following and sacrificial and joyful following of him, or whether you are new to Jesus in this place today and that your heart is being opened up by the word of God, that you, that you are longing to repent and believe and belong to him, may that happen in this place. And above all else, whatever happens in our hearts, may God's name be glorified in this church on this day and forevermore. For his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, may your glory fall in this place. Lord, whatever it is that we expected when we came here this morning, when our alarm clocks went off and we went through the routine to get here, whatever the stresses of our lives, knowing that we have to go back to work and school tomorrow. Lord, remove all of those things because they do not stand in your glory. Our deepest shame. The thing that we hope no one ever finds out about us. The darkness that when we close our eyes at night, we think about and run from. Lord, let us see it evaporate in the goodness of your glory. The anger that we hold melts like wax. Those who have sinned against us, who have wounded us deeply, they do not have the same power to hurt as you do to heal. And Lord, let us forgive. And let us turn to you for healing where we have become asleep and we've just become apathetic and we go to church and we're Christians and we have a bumper sticker or whatever, Lord, where, where our faith is just sort of, is sort of shallow, Lord, wake us up. Lord, give us a hunger for your glory, a desire, a thirst for your righteousness and for the glory of your name to be in this place and in our families and in our workplaces and in our schools and in this community and the world. Send your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.